We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Well, let's take a look here at Mark chapter 14 on the Upper Room Discourse. As Sherlock Holmes would say to to Watson, the game is afoot. And it is. The plot is ready to unfold. You see it there in verse 17. When it was evening, he came with the twelve and they were reclining at table. Judas is set to betray Jesus to Caiaphas. He has sent word. They're going to have Passover. I can't tell you where it is, but I'll get word to you. So Judas has a problem. He's got to leave during the meal. Jesus knows that Judas is set to betray him. And what's more, uh, Judas knows that Jesus knows that he is ready to betray him. And Jesus knows that Judas knows that Jesus knows. And so when Jesus looks into his eyes, Judas knows that he knows that I know what I am doing. No one else knows, but Jesus and this guy knows. Psalm 139, before there is a thought in my heart, thou, O Lord, dost know it all. And so he states in verse 18, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. John is on Christ's right, Judas is on his left, they make eye contact, one of you. Now, when you are told, when the normal child of God, the elect of God, are told that they will betray Jesus, I'm not talking about just sin. I will deny that I believe in you and I will give you over to be killed. I will stand among the enemies. I'm through with Christ. It's called apostasy, apostasis, to stand apart from. In verse 19, they began to be grieved and to say, surely not I. That's how the child of God responds to the notion that he could be done with Jesus. Could you turn, give him up, and go back to your old life? No. Hypothetically, you can, but realistically, he is too much in your life like Simon Peter, when his eyes meet you, when you deny you know him, you will weep bitterly. Dogs return to vomit. Hogs return to the, to the what do hogs go to? The slop. Sons go back to fathers. Only dogs go back to vomit. We're done with it. And so the child of God in verse 19 is grieved and he says, no way, no way that I could do this. In verse 20, and he said to them, it is one of the 12, one who dips with me in the bowl. In the Middle East, when you made a covenant, when two men made a covenant, they made vows, I will and I will. They made a sacrifice and then they ate a meal. And it meant that God was between them. And I will do what I say, and I will do what I say. It was the ultimate covenant. Uh, that is why treachery 
If you make a covenant with somebody, with God there and you eat with them, to break that covenant is like taking the Lord's name in vain. Um, this is why you see those funny texts like when the three messengers come to Lot's house and he receives them and feeds them. And then the Sodomites come and say, send them out. And Lot says, I have two virgin daughters. Now to us, that sounds preposterous. But in the Middle East, if somebody, if you broke bread with them and you were hospitable to them, and you were a friend to them, to violate that was the highest of, of evils. Um, that's why it states on the qualities of an elder, an overseer, he must be hospitable because that's the highest of, of attributes. Uh, there was a movie just came out with Mark, what's his name? Walgren? Walgreens, Mark. Yeah. Yeah. And it, uh, what's the name of it? He's a, an American soldier received into an Afghan's home. They care for him. The Taliban comes along and says, send him out. And these guys are willing to turn on the Taliban and fight to the death. Lone survivor. Lone survivor. And it's a true story. Because when you receive somebody in, it's the highest thing you can do. Turn him out or we'll kill you. Then you'll have to kill me. And so see that in what Judas did. I'm going to eat with you. I'm going to claim to be your follower. And then I'm going to turn you over for 30 bucks to die. And so the mystery is in verse 21 that the son of man is to go just as it is written. Woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Been good for that man not to have been born. Is the cross predestined? Yes, it is. Is the cross put into gear by the betrayal of Judas? Yes, it is. Is it predicted that Judas will betray him? Psalm 109 is the psalm of Judas. Yes. Is Judas culpable? For doing what he had to do. Yes, he is. That's the mystery. That God can be sovereign and men can still be culpable. We're thinking that you have to take one or the other. If men are culpable, God is not sovereign. If God is sovereign, then men do not have a will. So you either have to be a, a fatalist or a deist. One of the two. The Bible doesn't see man's will and God's will in collision. It sees man's will and God's will around it. Peter said he was delivered up by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified by the hands of wicked men. God is sovereign, you are wicked. Can you have both of those in the same sentence? Yes, you can. So that's, we're not expected to understand that, but it is a great comfort. When evil is done me, can I say that God is not pleased. Yes. Can I say that God comforts me? Yes. Can I say that God says vengeance is mine? Yes. Is God out of control? Is God asleep at the switch? So if somebody gets drunk and crosses the double line and hits my family and kills them, they should be prosecuted. Yes. They're sent to jail. Yes. That is an evil thing, bad thing. Yes. Horrible thing. Yes. Is God still in control? Yes, he is. 
And so that's our comfort that we can labor against evil and at the same time we can rest in the sovereignty of God. Voltaire and his ilk would say that's illegal. You got to give up one of them. And the Bible says no. Francis Schaeffer once said that God can let a man do anything he wants and leave nothing to chance. Such is the sovereignty of God. The wrath of man will praise him. Spurgeon preached a message once called free will a slave. How about that? And so Jesus says, yes, he's in Psalm 109 and it would have been good for him not to have been born. And though right now it is very awkward at this last meal, Judas must leave with no one the wiser as to what he is doing. One of you guys is going to betray me and they're waiting. Jesus has him. He looks at him and I think he whispers, checkmate. There's nothing you can do. I have you. You can't move left or right unless I say. So the question is, will Jesus expose him? Will Jesus sick Peter on him? Uh, will Jesus restrict him and thwart his scheme? No, he won't. How can he leave and not give himself away? Jesus opens the door. He looks at him and he whispers, what you do, do quickly. Meaning, I know what you're doing and get it done now. I give you permission to leave. Isn't that something? You mean to do great evil, but you can't. I give you permission. Go. Isn't that amazing? The always, the, the picture of God and Satan in the Bible is that Satan demands permission to sift you like wheat. Lord, do not cast us into the abyss. Cast us into the pigs. Uh, you've put a hedge around Job. I can't touch him unless you remove it. And so always Satan cannot act unless God says. And so the gospel writers are very careful not to let you think that Jesus is going to lose this match. He owns the court. He owns all, he owns the dealer, the deck, the house, the strip. It's all his. He will let the game proceed at his beck and call. He is sovereign. Everybody glad? Whew. Okay. And so in verse 22, while they were eating, he took some of the bread and after a blessing. So now with Judas gone, the last Passover is about to become the first Lord's Supper. The great metamorphosis between the old and the new is about to occur. The change between the symbol and the reality is about to occur. The shadow is about to disappear in the light of the full substance. The uh, prophecy is about to be fulfilled. The caterpillar is about to fly. All of the Old Testament has led up to this meal. All the new will lead away from it. If Spock were reading this, is that Spock? I get Mork and Mindy, and so that's Spock right there. Spock would have said, Captain, this is the vortex of the universe.
right here. This is where it comes together. What he does, let me just give you some notes to remember. Passover is to remember God's redemption of Israel through the shedding of blood. The meal of unleavened bread, the lamb, the cup of redemption, they were all a remembrance that brought a renewed love of God and a renewed unity of all the people. And it was a means to teach the kids. Why are we doing this? And so you would teach the kids 1,500 times, over 1,500, 15, yeah, 100 centuries. Is that right? That ain't right. Years. Years. Forget everything I said. All right. We've done it a lot. And so every year we do this since 1500 BC. And we're always showing, remembering how God gave salvation to the nation through no work of their own, but by the blood of the lamb. And how he took them on the journey by the body of the lamb. And God cared for them and brought them into the promise. So never, ever forget that. And so now a change is made. No change has been made for 1,500 years, but a change is now made. The Passover morphs into Christ. The old into the new. Redemption is through blood, but here at the Last Supper, it is not the blood of a lamb. The lamb disappears, and Jesus is going to take the bread and take the cup, and he will say, verse 22, this Passover is my body about to be broken. This cup, this is my blood about to be poured out to bring you into a salvific covenant with God. This is me. Uh, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. I did a message once at a church at Philadelphia. The name of the church was a, was a great name. It was called Greater Exodus Baptist Church because they understood that the, the salvation of Christ is a greater exodus. It is not just a physical deliverance. It's a spiritual deliverance, not by a lamb, but by the Messiah and not just taking you into the promised land, but taking you into glory. And it's not just for Israel. It's for God so loved the world. And so they called it Greater Exodus Baptist Church. In other words, the Bible is going to go from the physical to the spiritual, from the nation to the church. And so for us, whenever we do communion, we say, do this in remembrance of me. For as oft as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That we are saved by the unleavened bread. Leaven is a picture of sin often in the Bible. The leaven of Christ is un, I'm sorry, the bread of Christ is unleavened. He is a pure person with no sin. But that perfect life is no good to us unless he will die for what we did. His dying for what we did is no good if he's not a pure life. And so Spock would say, unless this man is fully man perfect, and unless this man is willing to die as the God man, this religion is dead. It must have bread and it must have blood. A perfect Christ does not save us, 
unless he dies. A death does not save us unless he's a perfect Christ. And so, uh, we receive him, we taste of the Lord, and we see that he is good. That it is the Lord's Supper that we taste of something, his body and his blood. Jesus said, unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood, you have no life in yourself. They said, how can you do this? He said, the flesh profits nothing. These words are spiritual. That when you trust Christ, can you remember when I trusted Christ, I took something in me and I tasted of the Lord. The Bible opened up to me. Prayer was meaningful. Sin became more barbed. You know what I mean? It wasn't cruel and groovy and even hip. All right. In the 1960s. You remember Jimmy? All right. It was now sin. The body of Christ meant something. Church meant something. The hymns meant something. Christmas and Easter meant something they had never meant. Family meant something different. The body of Christ meant something different. And it wasn't because I sat down and did a study on it. It happened because I was born again. To as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of flesh, nor the will of man, nor the will of, uh, of a husband, of an andros, but born of God. Not just physical conception, but spiritual conception. And so I was born again. Amen? It happened to you too. In your own way, it happened to you. And so, that's Augustine said, believe and thou hast eaten. And that's why the word right here in verse 23, they had given thanks, is the Greek word Eucharist. You ever heard of the Eucharist? It means the giving of thanks. And so we don't do anything to commend ourselves to God. We take this, we go through the symbol of eating it, and we remember. It's why you have anniversaries as couples, so you can go back to those first awkward moments, okay? And you can remember when we first loved each other. We have birthdays. You can go back to remember. We're glad that you came. And that's what the Lord's Supper is. Just like with Israel, it brings you back to, we are here because of the grace of God. And we proclaim the Lord's death. Well, in verse 24, this is the blood of, and it's going to be something, a New Testament. Why do we call the New Testament the New Testament and the Old Testament the Old Testament? Because a testament is a covenant. When you raise a child, you can't give that child sonship and freedom, can you? Not until he's 35, 40 years old. He's still a child. You can't give him freedom. Uh, you, ha you have to put rules on him eat this. I don't want to eat this. I'll beat you if you don't eat that. Those are rules. When you go home to see your parents now, they don't have to do that because you're not a kid anymore. You've entered into a new covenant. In Israel, they have a ceremony. It's called a bar mitzvah. You're now a son. We trust you. Uh, the, the people of God had a bar mitzvah at the death of Christ. We're no longer children with rules. You're a bar mitzvah. At a Jewish bar mitzvah, the little boy will get up and he will say, it's supposed to say, today I am a man. 
And they always kind of kid about it. He'll go, today, <laughs> I, am, <coughs> I am a man. I am now, I will fight for the nation. I will not rebel against my parents. Israel didn't have juvenile delinquency. You took him to the gate and stoned him. I'm waiting for an amen. Okay. You'd have never made it here, so don't, don't get too cocky. All right. And so that's the new covenant. Let me show you where that is. Look at Jeremiah 31. I want you to see it, what Jesus is quoting. As Israel is about to fall down into the ashes of the Babylonians, God says, don't worry, because in chapter 31 and verse 31, God says, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This isn't the end for y'all. There's going to be a day I'm going to make not just a restoration of the Mosaic law. No, you can get rid of the temple, rid of the priesthood, rid of the sacrifices, rid of the law, because I'm going to fulfill the law, the temple, the sacrifice, and the priesthood. I'm going to bring the law of God to its terminus. I'm going to mature you. And now I will give you freedom and you will willingly do the will of God. How? Because in verse 32, it's not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand and lead them out of the land of Egypt. What's that sound like? When I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. What kind of language is that? It's a child. I took you by the hand and I led you. You got to Sinai, you made a golden calf. You got in the wilderness, you griped about not having water. You got close to the Midianites, you went into their gods. You were like little kids. I'm gonna make a new covenant. We're about to have a bar mitzvah. Whoever is baptized into Christ has clothed himself with Christ. We're now, we're in the toga pretexta. They would give Jewish sons and Roman sons. But you're a son, you're not a child. So this, I'm not going to give you a bunch of more rules. That's not your problem. I'm going to affect your heart. In verse 32, although my covenant they broke, although I was the husband to them, this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days. I'll put my law within them. On their heart, I'll write it. I'm going to take the spirit of God and baptize you into the very body of the Messiah who is God. And I'm going to give you a new nature. Your old nature will be crucified and the power will be broken and you're going to become a new creation. Old things pass away, new things have come. You are going to open your eyes with a new willingness to obey God and a new pain when you don't. And that's going to be because I'm going to give you rebirth. It's, it's good to have a map in front of you. It's better to have a GPS. Does anybody have a GPS? All right, with an English woman talking to you. Right this way, sir. Don't turn there. Your wife will beat you. That's my GPS. I know I have what's called a wife. And she is my GPS. All right. This is the covenant that I'll make. My law within them on their heart, I'll write it, and I'll be their God. You are going to be obedient. I'm going to make you obedient. Now, this text historically is going to be fulfilled completely on the nation of Israel when Christ returns. It has already been instituted, not simply on the nation of Israel. They have rejected it, but on whosoever will. 
receive Christ as Savior, that person now has a new heart and a new nature. Amen? So that's what he was talking about. So the old is ending. The temple is ending. The priesthood is ending. The sacrifices are ending. The lamb is ending. And out of this comes the body of Christ, the new temple. The cross of Christ, the new altar. The Messiah of God, the new lamb. The church, the new people. Is God finished with Israel? No. He's coming back someday and the nation will enjoy this. As a matter of fact, he goes on in Jeremiah 31 and says, in that day you will not teach every man his brother saying, know the Lord. You'll all know me from the least to the greatest. We're not there yet. But we are those that have been grafted into the rich root of, of Israel. Into the, in your seed will the nations be blessed. That seed of Christ we have enjoyed. He has given us life and now we are going out to the entire world to say he came and he's coming back well if you'll look at verse uh let's see 25 he says i want you to do this i never again i'm going to drink of the fruit of the vine until the day that i drink it new in the kingdom of god he institutes this passover service that is now the lord's supper the only thing is there's going to be somebody missing every time you do the lord's supper Who's the person that's missing? Jesus. He's not here. And so we're going to say, do this in remembrance of me. You proclaim the Lord's death until I come. And so I will drink it anew in the kingdom of God, meaning I'm about to die. I'm about to leave. I'm going to leave you here, but I'm going to leave you with a new heart and I'm going to come back someday. You be ready. Isn't that good? That's a lot of theology for one sentence. Well, in verse 26, and after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. They left. The reason they left is that Jesus said, the God of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. See, it's not Judas is coming. It's not the Romans are coming. It's not Caiaphas and Sanhedrin's coming. Satan is coming. Christ can see what nobody else sees. And so they leave and they go to the Mount of Olives. Incidentally, this happened once. If you know your Old Testament, uh, David had been betrayed by Absalom, his counselor Ahithophel, that was also the grandfather of Bathsheba, went after Absalom. And they left and they, David knew if Absalom has his way, he'll come and kill everybody in this city. And so we need to leave. And so David preserved the people of the city. He left, he went down the brook Kidron, came up on the Mount of Olives, and there he waited to hear if, uh, if indeed Absalom was going to come after him. He had a guy in the city that was acting kind of as an undercover guy named Hushai the Archite, and he sent word to David, and he says, he's coming. Get Get across the Jordan because he will kill everybody there. So David leaves so he can protect his people. I think the same thing happens here. Christ knows if I stay here and the Roman cohort comes and Caiaphas comes, we're going to have violence break out. And so like David, he leaves and he goes to where David went to. And that is the Mount of Olives, which is the border going east of the of the nation. 
And so he stops there. And incidentally, something else happens. A couple of guys, Zadok and Abiathar, that served as priests for David, they ran into the city and they brought out the Ark of the Covenant. And so they escaped with the Ark of the Covenant. We've got the Ark of the Covenant. And they come to David on the Mount of Olives. And David says, nope, take it back. My comfort is the infinite God, not this, this piece of sculpture. No, take it back. And then he says this, if God is pleased with me, then God will protect me. If this is the time that I am to be judged, then it is the Lord, let him do what seems good to him. In other words, what David said was, not my will, but thine be done. Is there another person that will say that on the Mount of Olives? And it says that David goes up to the Mount weeping as he went. Gethsemane is a garden that is called the Olive Press. It's where you take the olives and you crush them and the olives weep and you have now light from their crushing. And so on the Mount of Olives, the same man that says, not my will but thine, who protects his men, who leaves and goes to where David went to, who says, not my will but thine be done, in just a moment he will weep as it were great drops of blood. And the olive is crushed. And as a result, we can study about it and it gives us light. Amen. Isn't it amazing how you're, you'd be living out the Bible not knowing that you're living out the Bible while you're living out the Bible. Is someone shoeing a horse? Okay. Let's move on here. In verse 27. And Jesus said, you will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He's quoting from Zechariah. This is going to happen to me. I know fully what's going to happen to me. You see some real theology here. I will strike down the shepherd. Question, who's the I will? Look close. It's God. Y'all remember the Mel Gibson movie, Passion of the Christ, and the big controversy was who killed Jesus? Did the Jews kill him? Did Judas kill him? Did Pilate kill him? Did Caiaphas kill him? Who killed Jesus? The Father. He rendered himself as an offering to, Christ, to God. And so God says, I will strike down the shepherd. That's who he is. He's the Moses, the Joseph, the Jacob, the Abraham of Israel, this Messiah. I will strike down the shepherd. What happened in 70 AD after Christ got struck down? Everybody fled. They took off and they were sent out. The sheep were scattered. He said, that's going to happen again. Israel is about to become scattered and you men are going to take off running. But in verse 28, that's not the end of the narrative. After I have been, what's your verb? Raised. God is going to strike me. I am going to die. Y'all are going to get judged, but I am going to raise from the dead. Judas, you're going to betray me. Everything. Christ sees it. 
Satan is coming, but the father is going to strike me. He's got the theology. He's got the narrative. He's got the Old Testament quoted. He knows about the new covenant about to come. He knows about the Zechariah prophecy. He knows Psalm 109 about Judas. Never outflank an infinite man. You'll never win. He's got it all under control. No matter how bad it gets, I know exactly what's going to happen. And so, after I have been raised, I'm going to go ahead of you to Galilee. That's where I took all of y'all from. I only had one guy from down south. That was Judas. He's not with us anymore. We're all going to go up to Galilee. And there we're going to start all over again. I'm going to breathe on you guys and say, receive the Holy Spirit. And I'm about to teach you things you have never heard. Incidentally, just before he left to go to the Mount of Olives, he delivered what was called the Upper Room Discourse. John 13 through John 16 is the Upper Room Discourse. There are three great discourses of Christ. The Sermon on the Mount, where Christ looks back just to the nation of Israel as to what true obedience to the law of God means. You've heard it was said, but I say to you, this is what it means. When you tithe, when you fast, when you pray, this is what it means. This is the law. That was to Israel as they saw Christ come. The Olivet Discourse is Matthew 24 and 25. And that looks at the tribulation period. And that is meant for Israel. There are abiding truths that touch us also. But it was the nation of Israel, not past, but future. This is going to happen. And the generation that sees it needs to know I'm coming. And so, Sermon on the Mount is to Israel, Matthew 5, 6, 7. We read it and get blessed too. But it's primarily to show Israel what obedience to God really meant. And then the Olivet Discourse that I'm coming back. In the middle is the Upper Room Discourse. And that is not given to simply the Jewish nation. That is to us. Here he is prophet. Here he is king. Upper room, he is priest. And he talks about this age. He talks about things like this. When you come to eat, wash your feet. If you're going to have fellowship with me, you're going to have to confess. You don't have to be perfect, but you do have to be honest. Then he's going to say, as I wash your feet, you're to wash each other's feet. You're to be humble and loving toward each other. He's going to say things like, uh, I go away to prepare a place for you. And if I prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto me that where I am, you may be also. In my father's house are many mansions. Don't get scared because I'm leaving. It's the greatest thing that ever happened to you. And I'm coming back to get you. And I'm going to take you home. It's the rapture. Then he'll say, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples. You're going to be out here without me, everybody looking at you. By this, they'll know. If you have love, you're going to have to love each other. And then he's going to say, I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit of God and he's going to abide on every one of you. You're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and he is going to lead you into righteousness. And what's more, he's going to even show you the rest of the Bible. I have things that I can't say to you right now, but the Spirit will lead you into all the truth. You guys are going to get all the truth and you'll know things to come. Then he'll say the Spirit is going to go before you and as you preach, he'll convince the world of sin, their lack of righteousness, the imminence of judgment. I'll get them ready. You speak and I'll bring them home. 
Uh, he's going to say, you just abide in me. You don't have to do anything super spiritual, any great kind of mystic incantations. You just obey me and trust me and walk with me every day and you will bear much fruit. Then he'll say, hither here before you've asked nothing in my name. You ask now, you're part of the family and you will receive. And so this upper room discourse, 13 through 16, it's all acorns. And when you read the rest of the New Testament, Paul raises up the oaks out of these acorns. They become massive ideas. Well, he goes in verse 26 to the Mount of Olives, and here he will wait. Peter said, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. I'm of better stuff than all the rest of these men. And Jesus said, are you really? Truly I say to you, this very night before a rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. You're not going to betray me, but you're going to act like you don't know me. I'm going to show you who you are. That you're nothing without me. I used to coach junior teenage baseball my son Ben was playing we had a kid on our team his name was Lance and uh, he was a left hander and he thought he was the second coming of Sandy Koufax if you don't know who I'm talking about don't worry about it. he really felt he, I played him at first base and uh, he wasn't bad he had a good arm, but, you know, only God knew where it was going when he, when he threw it. <laughs> but he was convinced he was one of the great pitchers that ever lived. So I kept him on first base. And uh, we got to getting beat. And he got to chiming in down there. Hey, hit the ball. If I was out there, I'd set them guys down. One, two, three, pow, one, two, three, damn, one, two, three, yeah, three, go in. If I was in there, I don't know why he ain't pe you know, making sure I could hear it. I got tired of Lance. <laughs> I beat Lance with his own stick. Um, time. Brandon, come on in. Go facts. <laughs> You're on. We were duly out of the game by that time, but I said, come on, you're on. Dang, boy, he's rubbing up the ball and put him on the mound, tossed it to him. I said, sick him. Well, first pitch hit about nine feet up on this backstop, <laughs> right? Just stayed within the park, but it just, poof, ball. So he better, thought he better lower it down. 60 feet, six inches to the plate. He threw it about 40 feet. Doom, 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 like skimming. Nah, it's no good there. You're down two. It's 0 and 2. And so he threw two more balls ringing off the backstop. And uh, guy walks to first. Well, here he is now. Guy takes off running. See, he don't know what a stretch is. You know what a stretch is? You got a runner on first. You got a pitch from a stretch. He don't know that because he, he's omniscient. Okay. So he gets ready to pitch. Guy takes off. He turns. 
What's the umpire say? Balk. He's never heard the word. Balk. Yeah, you can't do that. Do what? You know, you pitch him a stretch. Once you go to the plate, you got to go to the plate. What? So you got to go on second. He's thrown four balls. He hadn't hit the catcher yet. Go on first, second. Day. So now he'll pitch from this. And I said, hey, you got to throw it where he can hit it. Babe Ruth's dead. Don't worry about striking him out every time. Just get it close. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he didn't realize why that guy had a bat. <laughs> Bam! Out in right center. Run comes in. Throw to third. You got to back up third, Lance. What's third? You got to back it up. Ball hits a deal. Guy comes home, ground. It's an in park home run. He's thrown five pitches. He's down two to nothing. And I just let him stay out there. I didn't do anything. It's called the cha cha. I'll just sit him out there. What did I do? Not a, not a dang thing. That way, babe. Hang on in there. They shut the park down at nine. And I let him run up about 15 on him. And then I went out and got him. Come here. He came out a Calvinist, you know. He feared God deeply. He really did. Sometimes does God have to do that to you? You're so smart. Let's see how you do. Give you another jock illustration. When I was one of the great quarterbacks in the history of college football, (laughs) every once in a while, we'd have a running back and uh, they would start chiming in on the bed blocking he was getting. You guys... My mother could block better than you. And the offensive linemen would just look at me, the beasts. And they'd just give me this look. It was called the dead dog. And what you do is you take the snap and you hand it off and the linemen don't block. They just turn, kind of like blinds. And they let all these dysfunctional people come through and just hit him unmolested. And they would do that. And you would hear him reciting the Apostles' Creed (laughs) down there in the pile. Does God need to do that to us sometimes? Yeah. Peter is going to deny him three times. And John, Christ, will confront him on the ocean, on the seashore, and he will make a little fire just like he betrayed him at. And he will sit there and he will say, Peter, and he looks at the other guys there. Do you love me more than all these? Like you said, he uses the Greek word agape. Do you agape? You love me to the death? Seems like, let me check my notes here, Peter. Yeah, that's what you said. I love you more than all these other, other guys. 
Do you, Agape? Do you love me? And Peter said, Lord, you know I phileo. He didn't say agape. He said phileo, that means brotherly love, Philadelphia. Phileo. Do you love me? Lord, you know I, <coughs> I like you. What do you think Jesus said to him? He said, feed my sheep. Now I can use you. Peter, let me ask you again. Do you agape? Just kind of ground it in. Do you agape? Lord, you know that I phileo. You know that I'm fond of you. Feed my sheep. And then he saith to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you phileo? Are you fond of me? He said, Lord, you knowest all things. You know that I'm fond of you. Feed my sheep. And Peter, there's going to be a day that they're going to gird you and they're going to take you where you don't want to go. And this he spake of the death by which Peter would glorify God. Would Peter lay it down someday? After I show you who you are. And sometimes we've got to get a real good whiff. Downwind of who we are. And so, now Peter, I'm going to deal special with you. Because I've got a special place for you. And I can't have any self-exaltation in you. And so we're going to burn it out. Even at the worst time, is Christ purposeful? Isn't he? He sure is. Father in heaven, we thank you for this narrative that just unfolds and shows Judas and Satan and God and Christ and the apostles and Israel and the church and things past and things present and things to come. Indeed, the Bible's vortex is before us. I remember in my old pagan days the feeling of purposelessness because I didn't know what to live for. I didn't know what to give myself to completely. Wasn't hedonism, wasn't materialism, wasn't intellectualism, wasn't communism, wasn't fascism. I didn't know what deserved my life. And when I discovered that an infinite personal God had created, that evil had occurred, he had given his word, he had given the pathway on how to find him, on who he was, that he rose from the dead, that he could come into my life, and I could be part of what he was doing. I now no longer worried about finding God's will, just being in God's will. At the moment, that's all you ask me to do. And so I pray if there are people here that have an academic knowledge, a religious memory, but have never tasted of Christ. That God, you would draw them to the sufficiency of him 
and you would fill that empty spot in their heart. And we'll so ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.